And we are about to do a uh, recording here of the Discover Your Inner Awesome podcast, and you get it live. Gentlemen, welcome back to another episode of Raj Nation Innovations Discover Your Inner Awesome Podcast. My name is Rajiv Nathan, aka the Raj Nation. I am your show's host, the founder of Raj Nation Innovation, as well as a hip hop artist and a yoga instructor. Above all else, I am a storyteller. And I am joined by my co host, Victoria Cohen. Victoria is the voice behind the blog almondsandasana.com. She is a fellow yogi and a community activist focused on helping you make lifestyle choices that positively impact you and the people you serve. This is Discover Your Inner Awesome, the only show where you get to eavesdrop on conversations with entrepreneurs, artists, and musicians about the stories, the journeys, the struggles, but most importantly, the questions. The questions that help creative thinkers like you and I better understand who we are, what we're doing, and how we can do it better. Is real talk with real people doing real big things to uncover the real side of success. Now, before we dive into today's conversation, I would like to extend an invitation if you are not a member already. Join our tribe by going to discoveryourinnerawesome.com. Enter your email address there, and you will never miss another episode of the show, getting a notification in your inbox every single Monday when we launch a new episode. You'll also get my stories, advice, and tips throughout the month on how you as a startup can make your pitch a performance. All right, let's dive in now to our conversation on today's episode of Discover Your Inner Awesome. Welcome, everybody, to Discover Your Inner Awesome. Today on the show, we have Scott Katoon. Scott is the CEO of Technori and someone who I just found out went to the same high school as me. Scott, welcome to the show. Thank you for having me. <laughs> um, I'm excited to dig into your history, especially knowing that we come from the same... Um, at least geographic background. I didn't know that. It's like I said to you before. I I've seen you and like we were on the show, obviously on Technori show just recently. I knew I knew you when I saw your face and the name and everything. Just like rung a bell. <laughs> I'm like, I don't know why I know this person, <laughs> but I do now. I know. Yeah. Well, I was causing trouble in Glen Ellen back in the day, so that's how. You it's eat. a rough city. You know? <laughs> it's hard. It's hard to hack it there. <laughs> All right. So Scott, our topic today is how do you build economies of scale. Uh, we had a conversation a couple weeks ago, and you were like really passionate about this specific topic. So, why is this on your mind? Why is this important to you? Um, you know, I, without going on a, a rant to like start off your podcast, like let, let's start with easy steps. But there's uh, one thing that has been kind of bothering me of late uh, is there's a lot of founders and startups and things that are getting started. I think for growing their own personal wealth and not growing the economy around them. Um, there's a lot of, uh, oh, I can't get investments. Startups fail. Like, you know, no one wants to invest in our company. It's so hard. It's like, not really. You're, you're building a company that is not investable. Uh, you need to build a company that can grow uh, not only a bottom line, make money, but make returns for an investor, but can also hire people and grow jobs and, and be valuable to the community around it. And I just feel like it's sometimes there's this get rich quick kind of thing. And for all the companies that I work with, like in, in the companies that call and come on the show and whatever, the ones that we really spend time on are the ones that I think have a tremendous opportunity to scale and not just scale in, in terms of size and money, but scale in terms of like size of impact on the community around them. And 
uh, I guess I just get really passionate about it because there's sort of, uh, I was listening to the Mark Maron podcast on the way in today and he was totally unrelated. Obviously it's comedy talking to comedians. And he was talking about the fact that like, he feels like the United States is where the word huckster was like born. <laughs> and when I, and I'm not trying to say that you're a huckster if you're not building economies of scale, but there's something about the one to two man operation that is not, it, it's not genuine. And, and I, I just, I think that there are certain symptoms of companies that, it's like a multi-level marketing scheme that's also sort of masquerading as a tech company. Hmm. And it's like, uh, it just makes me feel kind of queasy. And I hear it like, you know, I don't say it to people when they're on the show, but like I hear them come in and pitch. And I'm like, I hate you <laughs> like, <laughs> in my head. I don't say it out loud. I don't say it out loud. So it's a passionate thing. Do not come in and pitch to him. If you are one of these people, you will hate you. You know, I don't, I'm not, I'm not going to hate them. Like I, I respect it. Like you do what you got to do, right? You, you do what you do. Um, but that's not to say that you, I, I guess the main point for me is don't be confused or like come back complaining when people aren't helping you build, build your business. And when investors aren't putting money in and when the opportunities aren't unfolding for you, when you're building something that only helps you. And, mm. that, and that, I guess that's the moral of the story. And so it's like, I would love to spend all day long, every day talking to companies about how, to build for scale because sometimes you can have an idea that might be a couple hundred thousand dollars to you and that's perfectly fine, but don't use up everybody's resources trying to build that company because we need them. There's people out there who need those resources to build a company that might be 200,000, you know, I'll get an example. Um, when uh, Clever Safe got sold to IBM, he made 81 millionaires. That's economies of scale. And so if I could spend all day talking about or, or this show at least with you, talking about, you know, some of the differences and how to, how to do that and how to build a company that has real purpose and can really, you know, Im improve the lives of a lot of people. I think that is much more important to uh, our community. And I think it's more important to our generation, especially as those graduating college with no jobs. I mean, you got to figure something out. So uh, it matters to me. I love it. I think we're gonna, it's going to be a really, really interesting conversation. So let's, let's take it back. Uh, way back in the day, a few years. So we both came, apparently grew up in the same town, went to the yeah. same high school, just a couple of years apart, which is really cool to learn. It's crazy. Um, Glenbard South High School, for anyone interested out there. Yeah, right. Uh, in Glen Allen, Illinois. So, you know, we both came from the same town. Um, what is your impression growing up in Glen Allen? Lived in a bubble. Um, there were kids that graduated in my class and after me and before me and uh that called themselves a posse you know like they had their own little group and they were all the same like rich white kids <laughs> with spiky blonde hair blue eyes you know well and this was like late clothing. 90s so you were like the peak of spiky oh, blonde yeah. hair was, and baggy jeans <laughs> yeah listening to juvenile in our like mustang svt <laughs> as you're going out the driveway because you're just so cool um you know it everybody's life was the same. I mean, and, and that sounds, it, it, that's not actually true. That's just how it felt. Like I found out afterward that there was a lot of kids that were at my school and at Columbard West, which is the other school in, in our town uh, that did not grow up with that environment, did not belong to a country club, did not, you know, spend their days golfing all summer. And one of the first uh, times that I saw that there was a huge difference in things was years, was like a decade later, I ran into a couple of guys, uh, that were went to Glenbard South as well. And I knew that they had gone to South. I didn't wasn't friends with them at the time. I didn't really know much about their family life. And I was, I was reminiscing. Like, I feel like we'd be reminiscing and be like, Oh, you know, 
remember those summers, right? It was like, do you want to, you know, if you don't have a, if you don't play sports here and you're not doing that, you have to get a job somewhere because, you know, you can't do nothing. That was the thing. And it was like, they looked at me like I was talking Chinese. It's like, you had an option. Like your parents made you get a job to stay busy. Mm. Like how fortunate for you. And I was like, I just, I was like shocked me that that wasn't the case for everyone in our high school because you just wouldn't have known yeah. Uh, and, it, and so I guess that was the first time I realized like, oh, I live in a complete bubble. So like all my friends are the exact same person. Um, and this is it, hopefully none of them listen to this because I'm going to trash more of it. <laughs> I this is so the, the theme of this show, I think, is going to be that we're going to talk about the economies of scale and, and all that. And, and it's important and cool. But like my journey is is like the perfect uh, hypocrite. Like my I'm like everything that has happened to me in my life would suggest I should be a different way. And everything I say and, and want and do aren't necessarily things that I do and, and have done. Uh, but to that point, my friends, like I would say I would get into fights with some of these guys, like, you know, over time, just, you know, whatever, growing up and through college. And I would tell them, like, you know what, like, I, I'm not going to take this, you know, shit anymore. And uh, I'm, I'm just going to go ahead and uh, replace you because there's a guy that's in a grade lower that looks like you, sounds like you, plays basketball like you. Like, I can just replace you. <laughs> Uh, and I meant it and I actually did like over time, like there was groups of my friends. I was just like, this guy's just starting to annoy me to no end. I just need to find another funny guy who plays golf on the weekends. Who's at least six <laughs> feet tall. Um, and, and looks kind of like us so that we can keep doing the stuff we do. Like yeah. And I did. And so I, I replaced, I replaced him. It was like, you <laughs> I, had I, your bizarro like friends. Yeah. I had bizarro <laughs> friends. Like, and, and to this date I still do. And my, my fiance looks at me like I'm out of my mind. Cause she's got like lifelong friends and they share everything. And I'm like, nobody in my world knows like, very like you know it's one of those things going back to Glomart South comment everybody knows each other they all know everything but like none of my real friends and, and fake friends or whatever you want to call it uh know anything about me really truly like if you had to ask ask like, real questions they couldn't tell you anything about anything that I do yeah and and I don't know why that is maybe it was because I felt like everyone knew your business and so I just created this like safe world but like my fiance she'll be like we're getting married in, in July and she's like got 800 friends or whatever she's inviting. And I'm like, I got like three, one of them's more of like mandatory. And then <laughs> the other ones are just like, will this help me in business? Like, like I'm serious. And that sounds terrible, but it's like, that's just the way that my brain is wired. And, and I honest to God, I think that it came from that question you asked, which is like, how did it shape me? I think it came from this thing of like, everyone's the same. Everyone's got the same background. Everyone's got the same story. So like, what's the difference? Like what's Yeah. Whatever. I know it's probably a weird way to take it, but. Yeah. So, okay. And I want to go back and then build back up from from where you were. But now, but I'm really curious because like what you were saying at the very beginning, and I think like why it sounds like you're passionate about this topic and what you mean by economies of scale is is making a business that is um, beneficial for more than just the person who's starting it, right? So like if the plan is to exit or sell or whatever, that like not just the CEO is going to make money, but that brought, it's going to have a broader impact, whatever that impact is. But I feel like, and, and I guess you did preface it by saying you live the opposite kind of than what you preach. But I feel like what you're saying is like a little bit different than that in terms of like people being more dispensable, Right. I don't even know what I'm really asking. I'm just confirming. No, I think I you're getting. You're right. saying like his, like his attitude. Your, your mindset about like friends is like they can be replaced. Mm -hmm. But what you were saying before was like you need to build things that are going to take care of other people. Yes. Yeah. So like here's here's the the great hypocrisy that is that is me. I I care a lot about people. I care a lot about the community. I care a lot about doing well. Um, 
and this is going to, I don't know how this is going to come across. Maybe it gets edited. <laughs> I just don't. No, we don't. Ed- there is no editing in this show. Um, so the, the, the deal is this. And I actually had a conversation. I was talking to Emil Cambry from Blue 1647 yesterday on my show. And we talked about this off the air. So I, I won't repeat the exact conversation, but the gist. And the reality is like, this dude does incredible things. I mean, his impact on the communities, honestly, I don't think it's measurable at this point. Uh, held a hundred classes for kids on coding and stuff just last month. Uh, that's insane. Um, and, and so for reference, Emil Cambry is founder CEO of Blue sixteen forty seven, yep. which is co working incubator space in a more just not affluent area of Chicago. Yes, right? yes, and it's and in, in, in his words, it's not for black people, it's not for white people, it's not for brown people, it's not for it's for every people. Mm-hmm. It's a place for anyone to be able to walk in and just sort of like whatever your jam is your jam, and if we can help you, we help you. Um, and so, you know, incredible person, incredible, and, you know, is hosting Michelle Obama Elementary there and lots of things. And there's a lot of stuff in the works. But the bottom line is, as I said to him, you know, it's not it's not just the work ethic and the smarts that like everyone could do this. Like, why doesn't everyone do this? And the reality is in order. And you've heard this line before with uh, I don't know, it's on Shark Tank and stuff. They talk about like before you want to do good things, you have to make good things or you got to make something before you can do something. Um, there's certain people who that who understand what it takes to, to succeed and to, to drive and to build and to deal with political BS and to deal with uh, copycats and to deal with people who are sabotaging your business and just the normal competitive stuff that takes place in the business world. And I know what it takes. I've been through this several times now. I've had my businesses stolen from me. I've had people rip me off, lie to me, screw me over in contracts. Like you name it, it's happened. Um, and I've learned from it and recognized that to build a company and to be, uh, a, a person who can build an economy of scale, you have to sometimes be ruthless and you have to look at people as like, you're going to play a certain role here. And if you're not, I'll find someone who will play that role. But, and that's hard and that's tough on people. And that's the part of me that's sort of the hypocritical part is like, I do care and I want to make good, but I can't make good unless I am able to be playing this at a ruthless, a, a hard enough level that you can get where you've got to go to be able to do good things. And Emil was talking about how Politically, there's a million people who have as much passion for social enterprise as he does. There's a, a ton of people who have the ability to do it. But do they have the understanding and the strength to go through it and to have to, to replace their entire team as he did when he went from Blue 16 1.0 to now? To just say, listen, I know we're here, but together we've gone as far as we can go. Yeah. And, and so like the, I take this approach of like to answer kind of your question, Victoria, it's like the, I've always had this hard line. I don't want to say – Patrick Bateman sociopathic sort of like channel. I just can be like, I'm just riding through the show and, and playing my role, but there is a greater good. So like while I'm on the mission, there's a mission at the end of it. And the mission at the end of it is to grow Chicago, to grow startup companies and, and people abroad. And it's not for me personally, for the Technori mission, it's to democratize entrepreneurship. It's to make it to where the, the rich white, you know, rich white blonde, blue eye guy that I so grew you. up with me yeah, <laughs> is not the only one who gets to control things. And that if you want to start a company and you want to invest in a company that's been reserved for the past forever, uh, for only the richest 3% of the country. If you want to start a company and you don't know a rich uncle, you don't get to start a company. Or if you do, you play with a different set of rules and you're going to fail. And no one told you unless you're very, very lucky, very rare. Mm-hmm. So we're changing that. And our mission is to change that. But in order for me to do that, uh, guess what? I'm going to have a lot of people who are pissed because there's a lot of rich people out there who would prefer that not to be that way. And so I have to have a certain mentality and makeup to be like, 
whatever. That's that's tough shit, I guess, for you. <laughs> you know, it's just, it's a it's a weird thing because you you have to be callous at, at on one hand and, and incredibly empathetic on the other. So let's kind of go through your own entrepreneurship history yep. then. So you you and so this is all going to come full circle yeah, in this story. I know, I know. You. Um, so you go to Northwestern for college, or excuse me, you go to Marquette for your undergrad, yep. and then you end up being a commercial property manager for a few years. Yep. So your first really endeavor in entrepreneurship, I would say, is after that with Nequity Chicago. Um, so yes and no. So I've always had, I never have fit in well into like a group. Like it's, I've always been on the outside. Like when I was at Marquette, I had my buddies on the soccer team, my buddies on the basketball team. I had my buddies who were just, you know, guys that I knew from high school that still went to Marquette or girls that went to Marquette. Um, and I, I would, in any given night, I would, I would hang out with three different groups. I never clicked in with one. I never, there's some people I went to school with the whole time was like, would consider best friends. And I never went to their apartment. Never saw it. No idea. I was always this person to just sort of outwire around. Like everyone knew who I was like, oh yeah, Scott's doing this, whatever. I would hang out with the people to get this. I wanted to pregame. So I hung out with them. Then I wanted to go to the bar. So I hung out with them. Then I wanted to go to this whatever. So I went with them. Um, and so what ended up happening out of that is I sort of grew this independence where if I wanted to make money or I wanted to pursue something, I would just do it, even if it wasn't in the curriculum. So like I was a, an advertising major at Marquette and they were like, oh, you need to do this project. And I was like, that sounds stupid. Like, I don't want to do that. <laughs> like, it's just a waste of time. And they're like, well, it's part of your grade. And I was like, well, it's stupid too. So um, what do you want me to They're like, well, you have to do something. So you can't just do whatever you want. And I was like, all right, uh, I'll do whatever I want. So I left and went down to the bars and I started doing free advertising, like drawing designs and stuff. And I actually ended up getting doing one for Johnny Walker. And then I turned this work into school and then they gave me a grade for it. But like none of the stuff I was doing, I was doing it for money slash just for whatever reason. I don't even know why. Uh, and then the school basically was like, all right, we'll, 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 we'll give you grades for it. Cause like you have to get grades. Uh, and this theme like starts going from there. So like that led to, um, knowing that I couldn't just work for a company, right? So it just made me feel, I guess I, I didn't fit in well with groups of people. If they put me and said, you're going to be in this line, Scott, you're going to have a cubicle. And in three years, you'll be an assistant cubicle guy. And then <laughs> in four years, you'll be a senior. And then you're a director. And then when you're director a director, of cubicles. you're director of cubicles. And then eventually, you know, you'll be here. Like that track, that track for me was like, I, I was getting pissed listening to it, let alone doing it. Um, so when I left, when I graduated Marquette, I have an uncle uh, uncle-in-law, whatever you call it, uh, who was very His successful. Name is uncle-in-law? Uncle-in-law. Oh, okay. Yeah, uncle-in-law. <laughs> uncle-in-law. I don't, I don't like, do, uncle-in-law. Do you, it's, like, it's like you say, like, like, like the yeah, law. Yeah, do you, do you, do, do, do you supposed to, is it uncle if they're married? I don't, I don't know. Uncle-in-law. Yeah. Something like that. I would just say it's an uncle. All right, well, uncle. Depends on, you know, how you view the relationship. Uh, so uncle, uh, who is a successful entrepreneur and was running a commercial media or commercial real estate company. And, um, you know, I thought, well, he's loaded and things are going well. Like I'll work with him and I'll get loaded and things will be great. Uh, and so I started doing this and, um, and I didn't know anything about it. Um, and he threw me to the wolves and I, I resented it and resented him over it. Uh, just the way things went. Cause I, in my, in my mind, I thought it was going to go differently and I was creating, I thought a lot of value for them. I was recreating their processes. I was I mean, they didn't even have the internet when I went to work for them. Like, they didn't have an email. Like, that. this is in 2007. Like, what the hell? Wow. <laughs> right? So, like, I, I felt like I upgraded you. Um, and I, I did such a, a nice job of upgrading things that when I when I left to go to Northwestern, they didn't even hire a replacement because I had automated the entire process, essentially. So, I, I felt like I was owed a little bit. 
and I didn't get anything in return for it. And I learned so much about what I do now. And my entire business model is based on what he was doing. And I haven't told him this yet. And I, I probably will someday soon here, but um, I left pissed. Like I was not happy. Uh, I was resentful. I wrote him a really wicked mean note uh, when I left. Cause I, he, he kind of like, I felt like he was tarnishing my decision to leave and sort of telling people like I was an idiot for leaving. Uh, and I wrote him like a, a three page, like F you circled, bold, printed, stamped on it. Like that's how I felt. Um, and so fast forward, like all this time later, and it turns out like he, he and I are a lot in common and he is, you know, understood what it takes to succeed at a high level and knew that I was lazy. And that if I didn't, if he didn't drive me and put me in there at all times that I would just flare, you know, I'd just whatever, go watch Netflix or something. Like I wouldn't do anything. Which at that time you'd have to be ordering the DVD. Correct. I did. Yeah. I did have the DVD, uh, which I, 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 I was, I was a very early adopter on the Netflix DVD. So was my grandma. Weirdly. Oh yeah. It's, it's the best. But, um, so anyway, like, I, I guess the point is that's like a weird stop where in your storyline, um, you would glaze over it and it would just be like, Oh, there was this time that he managed a few million square feet of commercial real estate and whatever. Uh, and then when you get to the end game of where I'm at now, you'd go back and be like, wow, that was the most formative thing yeah. ever because uh, it was it was a, a place where I was managing incredibly wealthy investors' property, and I got to learn what it's like to lose money for someone who has a lot of money and takes it real serious and have them call you on the phone and tell you you're a worthless loser, piece of shit, blah, 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 blah. And you're like, oh, wow. Like, um, I nobody gave me instructions here, so I'm like, well, life doesn't come with instructions, buddy. You just lost a bunch of money, so you're gonna have to work extra hard to make it back to me. And I was like, but it wasn't I wasn't even it, was but it like, wasn't my fault. Yeah, doesn't don't <laughs> I don't care. Like that was my money and I want it back. And it's like, oh wow, you're not kidding. Like, okay. Uh any ideas on how to do that? No. That's your that's your job. Okay. Have a nice day. Click <laughs> like and then I go walk over across the hall and be like, hey, like I just, you know, things didn't go well. Obviously, we lost this lease and this is what happened. And and it'd be like, well, you know, welcome to adulthood. Poof, door shut. Like, Jesus. All right. This is the real deal. Uh, and so then it was like that and learning how to write contracts. And long story short, uh, I figured out how to do this by locking myself in their office on a couple of weekends. And I pulled out, we had a couple million square feet of real estate. So you can generally get how many leases there are in this. I went through every single drawer of every single lease from every single property across seven states we had and read them lease cover to cover. Each lease, 60 plus pages, cover to cover. To where when someone would call me on the phone and they asked me a question, instantaneously I knew what lease, I knew what number, I knew what they're, uh, how much they're paying per, per month, I knew what their cam, real estate, recs, couple years, taxes, everything. I knew it off the top of my head. And there was lease terms and things that were specific to different places. I knew every single detail so that the next time when someone called me and was like, what happened? I could shake them down. And the turnaround ended up happening is the recession hit. So now everyone's in free fall. And we made more money during the recession than we ever made in the history of the company. And it was because I had such a mastery of the leases and the terms and the, the outs that I was able to get us out of occupancy lease kicks and things that I knew because I had memorized and read them that everyone else was just losing. They were just, people are pulling out. The tenants were just leaving because they thought they could. And so I, I kept us from having that happen. And then I was able to uh, figure out in a, in a recession, like 
what kind of uh, products and services do people use when they're broke? They drink heavier, they smoke, they eat shitty stuff, they wear cheaper clothing. So I started going and negotiating these like short-term quick leases with city trends and alcohol and tobacco and you know whatever. And that put us in a spot where all of a sudden we've got much more money. And then it's like at the same time that everyone else is losing tenants, we're 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 rolling. I got people coming in with bags of cash, paying a whole year ahead, uh, because they probably illicitly, illegally sell tobacco. But that's a different story. <laughs> uh, you know, so it's like that taught me. That was like entrepreneurship one on one. So then I go. I know that I'm I'm tired of making other people money, um, and not getting anything in return. Like that never changed. I I never did get what I thought I should have gotten. But it is what it is. Uh, so I decided I was going to leave and go to Northwestern. I wanted to go to law school. And then I started talking to a bunch of lawyers and, you know, I took the LSAT and did all this stuff. It's like, this is awful. Like, I, your guys' lives suck. Like, I'm thinking I'm going to be Tom Cruise in A Few Good Men, right? Like, I'm going to be rolling on thundering down. And they're like, yeah, like, very few people get that. And it turns out with the personality and the show and stuff and the host and stuff, I, I probably would have been able to get, like, a court appearance going. But uh, probably would have been my own court appearance. <laughs> um, but the bottom line is... Uh, I didn't see that as I didn't see the path and I didn't see how that was going to get me any happier. Uh, and so I, for like a lot of people, I, for no reason at all, I went and I, I just went to do a random program at Northwestern because I had gotten into their school and they were like, I didn't want to take another, you know, GRE or anything. Like I don't want to take a GMAT and retest. I just took the LSAT. So they accepted it and let me take the, the, the score I had and let me do a program that was not law. And then in the middle of it, I caught onto a project in innovation and um, basically just stayed on it for the next two years. And when my, my it was a one year master's program, when it came up, I was like, well, I'm still want to work on this project. Like, and they were like, you got to stay, you have to be a student. And I was like, oh, well, uh, what other programs you got? What was your original master's? What was your original master's program? Yeah. So it was innovation. Uh, mm -hmm. So innovation and communication. Um, and it was so, it was like a, a bunch of classes from a bunch of different stuff. It's like you could take, there were some law classes, some marketing classes, communication classes, all this stuff. And, uh, you know, there was a project that took place, uh, that I thought was particularly interesting. And it was with a company called big frame, which got bought by Google. And so I wanted to stay, like, I wanted to stay on that obviously. Um, and so they asked me like, you know, uh, if you want to stand you to be a student. So I was like, what are the programs you have? And they're like, well, we can get you in a program called media management, which is done through Medill and Kellogg. And I was like, well, that's a perfect deal. Like I got the media thing going. I mean, management would be great to learn more about it. So I jumped on it, got to stay on the project. Uh, Medill was a complete disaster. Uh, apparently no one at Medill at Northwestern knew that the entire media industry was going to collapse. <laughs> I told them. They were not happy. They literally tried to force me out of, out of the program. Um, they didn't. Uh, and then they, I, ironically, they ended up starting another, uh, creating a master's program called uh, Media Innovation and Entrepreneurship, which they used my transcripts for the two years, the two programs I was at to create. <laughs> so it turns out after a couple of years went by, they calmed down a little bit and they recognized that they were all screwed. Um, <laughs> but yeah, so, so that, was, that was kind of the track. And where that all ties into this is, um, during that program, I went downtown to 1871, which at the time was like 15 people in like just the narrow hall that is the, when you walk in and 
was like, holy shit, this is legit. This is cool. Like there's some tech people. I went to this event called Technori and I was like, wow, these companies are legit. These people, I think ironically, Rishi Shaw was pitching at that at event. They were just <laughs> uh, announcing Outcome Health at the, before it was Outcome Health. It was um, Context Media. Context Media. Uh, so they were pitching on stage. That's to, to date this back, how far back we go here, like 2012 or 11, whatever it was. Um, and it was like, wow, this is awesome. And so then I started spending a little bit more time uh, in the entrepreneurship thing and recognized that it reminded me a lot of, of real estate. It was like the Wild West. There was the haves and the have-nots. And if you knew something and you knew how to make things happen, then you had a lot of ability to, to rise up this tech, tech platform here. Uh, but the platform and the, and the community needed some serious building in order to get access to like real money and real opportunity. So when I left Northwestern, actually in the middle of it, I started building uh, with a couple of friends who I replaced. Uh, I started building this Nequity Partners Nequity Chicago thing, which the idea was it was essentially an innovation consulting firm, which uh, the concept has been stolen and copied a million times uh, to success. We just didn't have the money and the the run and the knowledge to build the business out the way that it, it could have been. Uh, but, but we got some good clients. We got SunTimes, you got the Tribune. Um, we got uh, Underwriter Laboratories, uh, several other clients that were like fairly large. And the gist of it was basically using design thinking to solve their problems. And then what became a common theme was that one of the big problems was uh, the understanding and use of media and that could be for marketing, but that could also be internal. It could be a lot of things. And so what started to take shape over about three years with that company um, is that the, the innovation was in media. And what happened there is it led to getting a, a, a working project with WGN. And I built their podcast studio and a show called Tomorrow's Business Today. And they started, had someone else hosting it and she was awful and, um, she, she didn't get it. Like they didn't get it. I was like, there's this 1871 thing and it's going to be big. People are going to love this. It's going to be like where all the kids go when they graduate college is they don't know what to do. This is the next thing. And it's a huge opportunity for Chicago. And they were like, no. Um, so they started talking about food truck drivers and plumbers. No one gave a shit about that. So no one listened to the show. Um, and at the time people were still saying like podcast, that was 2006. That's done. No one liked it. Uh, obviously, Raj, you found that that's <laughs> not the case. So um, at any rate, they crashed it. They shut it down, called me back a couple months later. We're like, hey, do you want to try this again? And I was like, yeah, but uh, I'll host the show and I want the rights to it back. So it's mine. And they were like, okay, it was a disaster anyway. So sure. Uh, I lied and said that I had hosted shows before, which I had not. And um, just went and I, I started doing it the way it was supposed to be, which is innovation and tech. And I got to like 500,000 downloads in about nine months. And then um, they started talking about picking it up and turning it into a real live show. And along that same time, um, I had realized that with the company I was doing, I, I, the whole purpose of the show was to like drive traffic to that company to do business consulting work. And um, I just like doing the show a lot more than, than the consulting. Like I'd love to sit down with you and talk about how to build your business. But then once you start trying to like, you know, screw me over on hours and dollars per hour. And it's like, all right, I just gave you like a business saving idea. And now you're scrounging for pennies on this. Like, dude, come on. So I, I left that and the, and also the partners that I'd started with were friends, were friends then. And we're not friends yeah. afterward. Okay. So amidst all this, you end up becoming CEO of Technori. Yep. Uh, Seth Kravitz founded it. He hands the reins over to you. Um, 
you've, this has been since about 2016, so we're looking at almost two years now, exactly, yep. right? In this time, you've, you know, from my observation, you've expanded Technori. And essentially, prior to, to you taking over was a monthly, monthly event. pitch event, yep. and that's kind of it, right? Um, since then, you've developed some content. It's, it, I would say it's more of a media platform now, right? Um, yeah, I mean, publicly facing, we're, we're doing that and on the behind the scenes, um, I don't know when this show is going to air, so I'll just go ahead and put it, put it out there. May. May. Okay. So by the end of May, people will, will know more about what I'm talking about here, which is the fact that, uh, we are going to be heavily involved in the investment side of things. Okay. And that the actual monetization of this company and support system and what we do privately is investment driven. So on the front end, we give everything away for free. The workshops are free. The events are free. Uh, we added equity crowdfunding so that at every event and on every show, when companies call in or they're pitching on stage, everyone on stage can invest directly in the companies so that, again, the democratization factor. You don't have to rely on one rich person to pay your, to pay your start. You can raise up to a million dollars from the audience and get rolling. So, um, <clears throat> you know, where all this kind of came together is with the, the media side of it is important, but as we talked about before, media's in deep trouble. So we didn't, we, you know, we didn't, I didn't want to take this over and then potentially crash it into the ground uh, because we made it very top heavy with the costs and expenses of driving a media company. So I've built up the podcast and we've got a live show on WGN now and, uh, and the events and the workshops and we've got private dinners. Uh, and then privately behind the scenes, there are companies from that whole mess of companies that come online that we, we, pick out personally and say, I think I can really help you um, and, and bring them into our co-op. And then uh, if we choose to invest in them with capital, we do. Okay. Okay. So then now let's kind of get into the weeds of this whole economies of scale yep. concept. Um, you, when you started, you mentioned that you, the line I wrote down was you said, don't be surprised when you build something only for you. Don't be surprised when you know, things don't go as you're planned if yep. you only build for yourself. Now, how do you juxtapose that against the whole notion that people say, you know, when you're starting a company, you're supposed to be building for a problem that you experience or that uh, oftentimes that's what happens with entrepreneurs? No, no, go. I was going to say what I interpreted from you, but you just tell me. Oh, no, no. Um, So I think that 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 line has been misused a little. I think I don't mean from what you just said. I mean, I think the line that the solve a problem, solve your own problem thing. Um, So there's Y Combinator. When they review applications, the very first question that they ask themselves is, <clears throat> is this something that is a problem that is experienced by a lot of people and the word a lot is circled and is said to be defined by the number of financial impact? So if it's a lot of people that spend a million dollars, then it doesn't have to be as many people as if it's a lot of people who spend a dollar. So when people say, this is a problem that you have, like, yeah, it could be my biggest problem in the world, but I also could be a complete moron and no one else has this problem but me. Right. And so having solved that problem for one person does not make it worth the pursuit. So what, what I look at is like, is there one, is the problem, you know, band-aid problem or is it like an injury? Are you, are you hurt or you're injured? Injured, you're off the field. Hurt, you play through it. If it's hurt, you're going to need to have a problem that millions of people are hurt and you're, you're solving. Because if not millions of people using it, there won't ever be enough volume. If it's a problem where it's an injury and you're solving a problem that literally um, is helping people do something that they couldn't have done before or it stops them from having something happen that has happened before and it's 
millions of people or it's thousands of people, but the price point is higher, then that's something that is, is worth looking after. The other part of this is it doesn't necessarily have to be something that scale, sometimes scales looked at the wrong way. And here's what I mean. Um, so let's say we look at the, um, look at like three different versions. So there's a spot here. We'll try to use home teams here. There's the, the Groupon Grubhub style. And then there's, let's just focus on that. There's, there's Groupon and Grubhub. So forget about whether they perform well right now or not or whatever. But Grubhub employs a lot of people. They employ a bunch of gig economy people. They also bring money in for local shops that people wouldn't have shopped at because they couldn't order out. They impact the economy in several ways, right? That's, that is like the, almost the pure definition of like the perfect economy of scale company. Then there's Groupon, which may not impact uh, gig workers, but they hire a lot of people because it takes a lot of people to be, you know, developing it and to sell it and yada, yada, yada. And then they also impact the companies that whose products are being sold on it or services being sold on it. And then those companies then have to hire more people to make the product or to perform the services. And so now multiple p- places of the market are being affected and grown scale-wise. The other way to do this is, it doesn't have to be a product or service. Let's use Technori as an example. Let's say we're really, really successful and I have to have five or six people on my media staff and I help thousands, tens of thousands who get to listen to the show and find out how to scale a business or get to interview, listen to your interview and hear how you've built your business. And then we invest, um, you know, we, we raise a huge fund and we start investing a bunch of money. Now I'm going to hire another 10 or 12 analysts to spend days looking over these companies and picking companies out so we can get companies from all over the place. And then we dump a bunch of money into these companies. And then those companies in, you know, invest in their company by hiring more people. And then they make more products which serve more people. Now my company only has like 12 people, but I'm impacting thousands. Groupon only employs several hundred people or whatever they're at now, 500 people plus, and they impact thousands. Grubhub impacts tens of thousands because they're hiring thousands of people plus gig economy plus shoppers and workers. All three of those companies are entirely different. There's nothing really in common about them other than that all three of them have been a technology. That's the only common element. Mm-hmm. Um, okay, so that means, yeah. but you know, you talk about that and that makes sense, but that's what I mean by scale though. It's not yeah. about, so like building a company. So if, let's circle this for one second. If I was, was going to do the Nequity company, that's a company that I found out was not for scale. That was a company that was self-serving. I was looking at companies and I was going, I can help you. You give me money and then I disappear. We would have as much money as we possibly could, but we weren't structured to grow in a way that we could hire 50 people or impact a ton of companies. We were very expensive. We were small. Like it, it was not, it would have been a good little three-man business. And that's why I'm saying like, just because you don't build for that, there's nothing wrong with that. I'm not judging you. I think if you have a three-man, three-girl business, you know, do, do it. But don't expect that people are going to want to help you all the way through and that you're going to raise capital like crazy for a business that's, quite honestly, has very little chance of returning. Yeah, it's a lifestyle business. Yeah, correct. Yeah, of yep. course. Okay, so let's take the Groupon Grubhub examples again. I like where you're going with that. And it all makes sense when we can see the big picture when they're publicly traded companies. Yep. But if you're you know, let's say you're building a software company right now. Um, how do you even start thinking down that path of eco- not, not just like scale in terms of revenue and customer acquisition, yep. but s- 
this like all encompassing economies of scale concept. Yeah. How, like, what do you even need to do to start thinking about thinking on that track? That's a good question. Um, I don't, I don't even know if I have an answer to the question as much as it's a feeling. Um, when I look at companies, I feel like I can just tell whether or not this is something that has true growth potential. In other words, is this just one product that's going to be bought by Microsoft and they're going to add it to their stack? Maybe. Like I said, there's nothing wrong with it. I just think that a lot of times you get too many people who find a little niche and they think they're just going to grab it and the hell with everybody else. So, I mean, from my standpoint, it's more of just like a, a personal look. Well, I think it's interesting coming back to something that you said. And so now it's, these two things are kind of juxtaposed as the idea that you have to be both um, – you have to have both a mission that help, that not just helps other people, but that is beneficial for more than just yourself as someone who's going to make a quick dollar and get out, but you have to be ruthless. And I think a lot of times it seems like, because I feel like that's actually something I'm struggling with massively right now. And my husband and I have had this conversation. He's like, you have to be more ruthless. And I'm like, I know, but the yoga industry, the blogging industry, it's like we're supposed to be nice and yada, yada. He's like, yeah, but there's a way you can do it and be ruthless. Like I haven't tapped into that yet, but I think that's really important because for me with like my blog and everything that I'm trying to build on, I want to build a platform that's beneficial for a lot of people and the kind of information I'm putting out there. But in order to be able to have the success and the money and everything to do that, I have to be ruthless in certain ways. And I just, I think that's like a really interesting point you make that in this whole economies of skill in the way that you're describing it, right? You have to be both of those things. I, I completely agree. I would also say that you're going to have a hard time growing. And to your point, Raj, you're going to have a hard time growing a team that's going to build this. Like, let's say you're going to use the software analysis or analogy. Um, you're going to build this idea. I've got an idea right now. It's two or three of us. Then we're going to need five or six because we're going to have to sell it. And then we're going to need whatever. If you're not mission there's not a mission. And when I say mission, it doesn't have to be like big social impact. Like my mission might be that I want to become the biggest software for service company on the planet. That's my mission. Okay. If you can sell it to people, go for it. Um, you're going to have a really hard time building a team that is awesome working for you. If you don't have a mission, because people don't, the majority of people don't wake up and be like, yeah, I just can't wait to go sell some SAS. Like <laughs> it's hard. Or sell with SAS. Hey. Or sell with SAS. That's that's another that's another that's another good one. But but it's like so like you you have to have a mission behind it to drive drive the force and um you know I guess it's one of those this is sort of like this is gonna be seem very strange but it's sort of like that uh, like pornography on TV thing like whatever it is like you know it when you see it you know what I mean <laughs> the I, government's I, definition of it yeah the government's <laughs> definition I know I know porn when I see it. Uh, it's, it's just, it Who is. Who was it? What politician said that? That's gotta be Bush. Was Bush one. Yeah. Or Dan Quayle. Was, yeah. One of them. It was one of those, I think. It wasn't the second Bush. It's the first one, I think. <laughs> yeah. Or like Bob Dole with his pencil. Somebody, I was thinking it was, I was thinking it was maybe it was like a Bob Dole-esque. It, it has, for some reason, Dan Quayle stands out to me as saying like something about this. But I we'll, know it when I see it. We will look it up. I know porn, I should, I should sure hope so. Um, we know inappropriate you know, when we see it. Yeah, right? Uh, so, you know, the when I see, I, and I, there are several I will not name, but I can envision them in my head right now, um, where the person comes in and pitches and it's like, I see a lot of you here. I see a lot of you hiring people to support you, not to be able to do anything on their own. I see you creating 
some way to game the system. And I don't mean that in a bad way, just finding a way to like make a niche and then being able to, now you need somebody else to sell your service to other people so you can get more people. And then now you need someone else to like kind of manage you. It's all about you. It's continuing to be about you. There's no, and again, that doesn't necessarily have to be bad. Like Technorian theory could just be about me and my like show and, and bringing companies in and then us dispersing cash. But the management style might just be about me. Again, the hypocrisy thing. The management style might be about me, but we're doling out cash and we're doling out audience for a bunch of people. So we're 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 doing the scale thing. It's just different th from other people. So like when I say this, I just want to make sure people know, like I'm not criticizing anybody, uh, whether they're going this direction or not, or if it's a two-person trick or if it's something bigger. Like it, I mean, there's no criticism or judgment. My only criticism is know what you are know what kind of business you want to build and know what kind of like, you know, whether it's an entrepreneur, leader, whatever, know who you are because this community, Chicago will use as an example, only has so many resources. There are only so many micro VCs and angel investors and every person who takes money and I, you know, God bless, you got to do what you got to do. Like you got to, if you can get money, access to money, take it good. Uh, but the amount of times that you take money from a, an angel investor and then you don't return it, that means somebody else isn't going to get that money mm. and you're, you're slowing the economy down. So you're not helping that. Now, if you, if you've got a one, one person show and, and, and you can make money, please try to make revenue first. Don't take investment capital from people that you have almost no way of opportunity of knowing that. Like for me, as an example, in at the equity partners, I knew that to do it, we could have taken money. That would be great there'd be almost no chance of returning capital except for like an interest rate. Like we'd just be paying on debt. Technorian, the original version, when I acquired it from Seth and I looked at the, the way that everything was structured, if I took an investment, I, I told the guys uh, for us to do this properly, the media, media only, we got to raise a million bucks. And I had, I'm not a lying person, so I'm going to have to raise a million dollars telling every investor there is almost a certainty that you will never see a dollar of this back unless we get sold or bought, I guess. Uh, that's the only way. So I'm going to lie. I'd have to lie to you otherwise because you there's it's media. You see the shit falling right in front of you, right? It's an ivory tower of trivia and the pieces are falling right on top of her head. <laughs> um, so those are not things that are scalable. Those aren't things. So I never went and asked for a dollar. When I finally figured out our model and knew what we were doing and could see how we could impact and scale and go to different cities and really change the way that this community ra raises capital and grows businesses – I went and talked to a handful of investors and I got no no's, nothing. Every single person was like, we had th th three week turnarounds on closing money, which is unheard of because it was super clear. How do I get my money back? Very clearly. If we perform on this thing and we deploy enough capital to get to these companies, you'll have returns way in excess of whatever advertising click ratio would have been. Yeah. You know what I mean? It's so like, you got to know who you are and there's nothing wrong with it. I just recognized that I was, I would have had to like, I guess my, to, to summarize that if you in your heart of heart of hearts in your mind of minds, if you, and this goes back to the yoga thing, if be true to yourself, if you think you have to lie or fudge to get what you need out of it, you should I mean, probably reconsider, you should probably reconsider <laughs> or you got to live with yourself. So it's up to you, but like you should probably reconsider. Yeah. All right. Let's bring this home. By the way, just so everyone's aware, the phrase, I know it when I see it, is a colloquial expression by which a speaker attempts to categorize an observable fact or event 
Although the category is subject subjective or lacks clearly defined parameters, the phrase was used in 1964 by United States Supreme Court Justice Potter Stewart, great name, Potter Stewart, great name. to describe his threshold test for obscenity in the Jacoba in the Jacobellus versus Ohio case. Wow. <laughs> Holy cow. So, so it had to have been repeated at some point. I guess so. All right. So um, before we wrap up, Scott, where can our listeners learn more about Technori and get in touch with you? Uh, Technori.com. Uh, you can follow me on Twitter at Katoon. Follow us on everything at Technori. Uh, the DMs go straight to me. Uh, I Slide into his DMs, people. Yeah, dude. Yeah, yeah. Send me anything you want. I mean, I get <laughs> – if I we could have a whole other show just talking about the messages that we get. It's <laughs> – it's for real. Like, it's legit. Like, companies, like, the the, in, the asks are just awesome. <laughs> I had a guy say, like, do you know, um, like, oh, who was the, the big exit we had here? Um, not, it was before. RX Bar? No, no, no. It was, like, before uh, before Brad Keywell. It was, like, the big, big, big one we had in, like, the late 90s. Like, he hasn't even been in Chicago in years. It was, like, Hyzenga Group level, like, money. Oh, yeah. And he's, like, somebody's, like, hey, do you can you just email them for me? I'm trying to raise money. It was just, like, yeah. Sure, <laughs> idiot. No, but yeah, please follow us. Uh, if there's any questions, by by all means, reach out. All right. So then, to wrap up, um, we will go one by one and give what we believe our answer is to the question today, based on the conversation. We'll start with Victoria and Scott. We'll close with you. So, Victoria, to kick it off, how do you build economies of scale? Well, I think kind of to the point that I was saying before, what I was kind of grabbing out of this is. You build economies of scale if that's the kind of business model you're going after. And it's not just like, I'm just going to have this business for myself and not take on investment because that's totally valid too, to just be your own mom and pop business and whatever. But if you are going to take on other people's money, that you have to have a mission or a purpose that is greater than just the benefit of yourself, whatever that means. And that can look like a lot of things. Um, but I really did like that piece of even to do good, you have to be ruthless along the way. Nice. Uh, my answer for how do you build economies of scale? Uh, I kind of like what I, what I was pulling out of that uh, Grubhub Groupon example is it's almost like there's this, there's this holy trinity of human, ca human capital, which is employees, customers, and partners. And within that, you don't have to t like turn the lever on all three but you have to know what levers you need to turn in order to expand in the way that is going to be this scalable and serving humanity, more or less, uh, company. And if it is just one lever, or if it is, is all three levers, there's got to be a strategy behind that. Like, Scott, I'm sure as you know, as well, as you know, I talk to a lot of companies, and I'm sure you do it too, who just think like, oh, well, once we get the investment, then we can get customers. But we, but we can't do that until we get an investment. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> so they have to have the strategy behind it as well um, for how you're going to involve those groups. Scott, how do you build economies of scale? Uh, I, I think you just summed it up really well. Um, I'll add to what you started with on the sales part of it using RX Bar, who you mentioned before. Another Glen Ellen. Really? They were Glen Ellen too? Lombard West, all of them. Oh they were all God. my little league team. So that's <laughs> going back. We're bringing this truly full circle. <clears throat> we were all drinking Kool-Aid jammers and eating chewy granola bars. Oh, and then eating, eating Elfies and then heading home. <laughs> um, so literally, Peter Rahal, who's the founder, <clears throat> he started this company in his parents' kitchen. And he kept asking his dad, like, when do I know when it's time to raise money? When do I know when it's time to raise money? And his dad said, sell a thousand bars and you'll never have to raise money again. He just sold the company for $600 million. And the amount of money he raised along the way was very tiny uh, bridge loans and things like that to, to help support the sales. 
um, <clears throat> he he built that company because he wanted to eat a good protein bar and was tasty and gluten issues and things that he had. He found out over time how to build that company in a way that could scale and affect and impact people. Then he found a way to get the product out to those people. Then he found a way to get the product at a price point that would reach people. And now he figured out how to way to make sure to get that bar, RX bar, on the table and counter of every single place in, in every single grocery store in the country by selling it to Kellogg. So how do I build economies of scale? I literally look at my company. I look at what I wish it to, to do. And I do everything I possibly can to let it impact the most number of people humanly possible. That's, that's how I determine my success. Am I reaching the people that need what I'm, what I'm making? And that's it. That's awesome. I love it. Scott Katoon. Thanks for joining the show. Glenn Thank Allen's you, finest. Glenn Allen all day long. Thanks for, <laughs> thanks for having me. <laughs> You're not missing much. <laughs> that wrapped up our conversation. Did you, the listener, enjoy this episode? If so, the best compliment you can give us is a rating and review on iTunes. Ratings and reviews help more people find the show. Therefore, more people get to discover their inner awesome. While you're leaving that review, go ahead and subscribe to the show on whatever platform it is you listen, whether that is iTunes, Google Play, SoundCloud, Stitcher, or the various other podcasting platforms in which you can find the show. For full show notes, references, and resources from this episode, you can grab it all at discoveryourinnerawesome.com. Also check out our 100-plus episode archive while you're there. whole lot of awesome for you to dig into. That'll do it for this one. Thank you again to our guests for joining. For Victoria Cohen, I am Raj Nation. You have been listening to the Discover Your Inner Awesome podcast. We will see you next time. But in the meantime, take care and be awesome today. <laughs>